Really good to hear the people of God worshiping together. That was awesome. Uh, we are headed next week to Passover. That's a, a practice that has been around for almost 4,000 years where uh, it's still practiced in the Jewish community and we do it here. So we're going to have a Passover meal. It's normally something that takes three or four hours. We have an hour. We cram some stuff in. We skip a bunch of stuff. We give you the highlights and we mix in things um, different every year so that you know, you're exposed to some different parts of it. But it helps us remember where we're headed. And where we're headed is the, the week after that is Easter. And we've got a great celebration plan, uh, lots of arts, some different elements, because it's, it's the most important day in the life of the church. It's a big deal. So I hope you'll plan to be here. And I hope you're as excited about um, all of that that's ahead of us as we are. Uh, today, we have some stuff to finish. We started a, a series where we were talking about ego trip. And it's just the reality that most of us do not struggle with egos right out there in the open. It's, it, some people do. But for most of us, ego is sneakier than that. Comes in the back door. And you don't, you don't even know it's there. You know it's there because you have defensive structures and attitudes that kind of go off in your life. You know it's there because you care about getting the credit. You care about getting the honor that would come with that sort of thing. You might even know it's there because you feel sorry for yourself. And it generates a self-focused thing that's all about you. These are ways you know the ego is at play. And they've all been in my life, and I suspect if you were honest, you would find opportunities to go, yeah, that might have been ego, like, trolling around in my heart. Well, this morning, what I want to do is I want to talk to you about an antidote. Like, there's some different things that you could do, and you, you might be tempted to think, I already know the antidote. I'll just not do those things. I'll not be arrogant. I'll not look for honor. I'll not have defensive attitudes and structures. I'll not feel sorry for myself. And all I can tell you is that's not a strategy. Because what's happening when you see those things is ego has got into place in your life and it's grown. And out of that comes the results that people can see. They can start seeing those different things that we've talked about. And now maybe you can too. But the antidote for that isn't to suddenly just stop that stuff. It's to find something that's good that you put in your heart and you grow it. And when it grows, it starts to push other things out and you start to have different reactions and responses than you normally would. That's what we're trying to do. Now the thing, the antidote, this idea that we want to find a way to grow in our lives it's hard. It's a simple word. It's called humility. And it's hard because in our culture, that is not a valued trait. When people hear of humble people, they think, I'm going to get walked on. I'm going to get run down. People are going to take advantage of me. I don't think humility is a good move. Well, I, I want to suggest to you that I don't think humility is about weakness. It may be about some of the most um, kind of strong things that you could do in your lives. And here's what I want to do. I want to take and show you um, how they show up in the actions of somebody and then look behind that and go, what's going on here 
that they were able to respond with a level of humility that I wouldn't understand or I wouldn't necessarily have in that same situation. And we're going to use a guy to do that called Moses. Why? Listen to what the scriptures say about this guy. This is Numbers chapter 12, verse 3. Now Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. It's pretty cool. It was a high praise. Is it at all awkward that Moses is credited with writing the Torah and this is in the Torah? It is a guy who says he's the most humble person on the face of the earth really humble? That's a fair question, right? And it's complicated. We know from 2 Timothy that God says, um, all the scripture that you have is God-breathed. I influence this somehow. Um, you're still going to see the writer's personality. You're going to see their experiences. You're going to see their time in history. You're going to see all the kind of things that you would see if that person was writing. But the Spirit was somehow influencing what was written. Um, some cases, it goes further than that. For instance, in Exodus chapter 16, you actually have, Exodus 32, 16, you actually have a verse that calls out where God is actually the author and the, the, the scribe who writes these things down on the tablet. It wasn't just that he was influencing what was said. He was saying, say this, write this down. And he did it himself in some cases. All of which is to say that if it's here, if, if it's a comment made, it's not by accident. And so I can look at this and know, well, I think God must want us to understand that Moses had a different level of humility than we did, which honestly, when you see that and you read that, you should be a little shocked because Moses did not start that way. For the early years of Moses' life, there were no signs of humility. He was raised in a palace. He was educated. The rest of his people could not have said that. He had freedom that they never would have been able to consider. They're all slaves. He's running around having a good time. You want to know how humble Moses wasn't? He murdered somebody and thought he could get away with it. That is not the action of a humble person. That's the action of somebody who feels entitled like they, they've earned the ability to do this kind of stuff. Now, later in life, we start to see Moses doing things that, I don't know, it makes me scratch my head and think, man, this is a really humble guy. I don't know if I could even do that. But even then, there were moments where he was angry and explosive and he had these, like, these temper tantrums. And yet... God's telling us he was doing better on earth than anybody else at the, who was alive at that time. So there's something here that we could do to learn from him, and that's my goal. Where, where did Moses get this humility? I, I don't know. The first half of his life, it definitely wasn't there. You saw it displayed in the second half of his life, which means the middle part of his life. Like, from zero to 40, he was in the palace. He had life good. From 80 to 120, he was leading the children of Israel. But from 40 to about age 80, the guy was in the desert watching sheep and goats. If, if he had been raised in the palace, 
he would have been raised with these expectations of doing grand things. And then his life was watching sheep and goats. And talk about feeling deflated. It was either deflated or this is where God grew this sense of humility. We don't know because we don't know much about this. But we know at 80 years old, God comes to him and says, I want you to come lead my people. And he thought, no, I'm not capable. I'm not able. I'm past my prime. I'm done. And God didn't think so. And God sends him on a journey and we're going we're gonna, to, um, this morning, look at three different stories. There's a lot. There's a lot we could have chosen from. I'm going to cherry pick three stories. I'm just going to go in the order that I found them in the text. I don't know if that order's right or not. But it's just the order I'm going to recall them on. And I'm, my primary question is, if he is the most humble person who was on earth at the time, where can I find an act of humility in the stories that I'm reading? And what can I learn about that so I could do something about it? Because I'd like to see that grow in my life. That's where we're going, okay? So I'm going to start in Exodus chapter 18, where he has an interaction with Jethro, his father-in-law. Now, um, I know not everybody here has a father-in-law, but everybody here probably has a relationship that's unique, right? Um, I, when, when I uh, went to propose to Tracy, I knew that I was going to end up with a father-in-law. And I knew that this guy had a lot more experience with his daughter than I did. And I was trying to find ways to give him a sense of confidence that I was going to be okay with taking care of her. Like, I, I've got this. We're going to be okay. And so you had this, I, you know, I want, I want to impress you, but uh, I, I got to, it was awkward. It's an awkward, you know what I'm talking about, right? And some of you, I've t- in every married couple's group I've had, in-laws come up. They come up every time. And some people are like, best situation I've ever had in my life. And then the other half of the group goes, we hate you. Because they don't. Like, it's an awkward, turbulent, confrontational kind of thing. Well, we're about to see something unfold because what Moses is doing is unsustainable, and his father-in-law comes for a visit and sees it. This is what it says in verse 14 of chapter 18. When his father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, what is this that you're doing for the people? Why do you alone sit as judge with all these people, stand around you from morning till evening? In other words, what are you doing and why are you doing it? Have you ever had anybody ask you that question? If you have any ego in you, the defensive walls come up immediately. Why are you questioning me? Why don't you have my best interest at heart? That's not very supportive, right? Worse, when it comes from that kind of relationship where you're trying to find a way to have that person impressed. Father-in-law, he... Moses actually gives an answer, but Jethro's not done. In verse 17, he says this, what you are doing is not good. In 18, you and these people who come out to you will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. 
In our culture, those are fighting words. What do you mean I can't do it alone? I'll show you I can do it. Don't tell me what I can't do. I, I'm going to make it happen. I know this is different. I know, I know it's different, but it's kind of the same, right? When I was younger, my father-in-law asked me to help um, move a washing machine with him. And as I was moving the washing machine, it slipped in my hand and fell down. We had to regrip and pick it up. And before I did that, he goes, are you going to be okay? Is this too heavy for you? Okay, friend, I will move this myself. I'll move it downstairs. I'll move it upstairs. I'll move it wherever I have to. Like, it slipped. And you're like, no, that's not okay. It's that kind of thing. Dude, this is too heavy for you. You can't do this alone. This sends off all the warning signals for somebody who's got like an ego thing. And I know I was younger when I responded and had that kind of reaction to my father-in-law. I'm not sure it gets better when you're over 80, right? Wouldn't you look at somebody and go, yeah, I've been around. I think I know what I'm doing. Why, why are you messing with my stuff or speaking to me like that? Maybe you should just take a step back and let me do what I need to do. Like, I, I know Frank Sinatra wasn't around during his time, but this has become the theme of our whole culture. I did it my way. And so we have this thought in our mind when somebody tells us what to do or how to do it or suggests something different, we think, don't tell me what to do. And if we just had a little moment of honesty, just a little moment of honesty, when was the last time you said that or thought that? Said that to a teacher. Said that to a parent. Said that to a family member. Said that at work. Thought it about your boss. Don't tell me what to do. It's there, right? It's a part of who we are, which makes me wonder, what in the world is Moses going to do with that? I'm happy to report, verse 27, then Moses sent his father-in-law on his way. It's just like, finally, something I read in the scripture that I get behind, right? Hit the road, Jack. You're going to talk to me like that? You're out of here, except... Except, I may have skipped to the end of the story. And there might have been something a little earlier in this story that's a little more difficult to swallow. It's verse 24. Moses listened to his father-in-law and did everything he said. What? Why would he choose to do that? Now, in my opinion, this is an act that comes from humility. But what caused him to respond this way? Somehow, somewhere along the line, Moses realized that he had to be open to feedback because it was possible that he could be wrong and that if he could be wrong, he could be hurting not only himself, but everybody else. If you pay close attention, what Jethro says is if you don't change this, you'll wear all of yourselves out. He's talking about everybody that he touches. He says, listen, you have got to find a way to accept some feedback because you're going to damage everybody by what you're doing. Can I tell you, years back, 
I started removing two words from my vocabulary because I would get into conversations with people, watch their response and reaction to it, and realize that I had lost them. I have, I have tried to wipe out saying, it, I can give you some advice or I'll give you counsel. In almost every case when I've done that, I see the barriers go up. People don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear what you have to say in that way. I use the word, can I give you my perspective now? And people are open to that. Why? Because we have this don't tell me what to do kind of attitude. And if you think you're going to give me some advice, I don't know who you think you are, but I'm not really open to it. And it's become a thing that we kind of do with each other. Moses didn't have that. At some point, he realized that the feedback that he was going to get, even from difficult people in your life, was worth considering. And in some cases, following. He listened to what his father-in-law had to say, and then he adjusted everything that he was doing because it was going to be better for not just Moses, but for everyone. He had an attitude of, I guess maybe I could learn from about anybody if I'm willing. So he has, he has this. And if you want to grow some humility in your life, you'll start to open your life to feedback, even from the annoying people who give you feedback, even from them. Second story happens with Moses happens in Exodus 32. He's on Mount Sinai. This is the section of Scripture where God writes out the tablets and he's going to give them to him. Moses and God are having a, a good kind of powwow on the mountain. And down in the valley, the children of Israel, they become impatient waiting for Moses. And so they pool a bunch of gold together. They melt it into a, a golden calf and they're worshiping it. So they're worshiping a God from Egypt while Moses is up on the mountain with a God who led them out of Egypt. And this conversation happens between Moses and God. This is verse 9. He says, I've seen these people, and they are a stiff-necked people. I see these people down here worshiping the calf. Man, that is one obstinate group of people because I've, I've gave them freedom. I've shown them protection. I've showed that I'm leading them. I, like, I don't know what else to do because I'm doing everything to show them that I'm worthy of their praise and they're worshiping a God from Egypt, the gods I saved them from. And then he makes this offer to Moses, verse 10. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them, that I may destroy them. Then I'll make you into a great nation. I'll take you, I'll take your descendants, and I'm going to do something great with them. And I'm telling you what, if there's any ego in his heart right now that yearns for credit, for honor, for respect, he was just given it. You want some respect? You want some honor? Here's an opportunity. Your descendants will be taken care of. By the way, I, I don't even think you have to have ego for this to sound like a good offer. If God came to you and said, 
I would like to take care of your descendants. I would like to bless them. Wouldn't you quickly say, do it. Sign me up. I'm interested in you kind of blessing my family line. I love the idea of that. What did Moses do? End of verse 12. Pleads to God, turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. In fact, verses 11, 12, and 13 is Moses pleading with God not to follow through on that plan. This is odd, right? These people are being disrespectful of God, and Moses is pleading on, on their behalf. Please don't do this. Look at what happens, verse 14. Then the Lord relented. Every one of your literal translations will say, and the Lord changed his mind. If you've ever wondered if prayer matters. God has this desire to partner with you. He wants to be a part of your journey, like taking you and him together to places that you'll go and things that you'll do. And he takes the partnership seriously because I want you to see um, what he's trying to convince, like Moses is trying to convince him not to do this. And God listens. Why? What's his primary motivation? He actually changes his mind. Why? In verse, the first part of 12, he says, why should the Egyptians say it, it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off in the face of the earth? He's saying, listen, you did all of this to bring them out of Egypt. People are going to say that you're kind of an evil God because you just brought them out here to kill them. And I don't want people talking to you or talking about you that way. Now, here's the thing. If God would have wiped them out, he would have been righteous in doing so. God had options. And one of those options was when Moses pled for mercy, he could choose that too. Both of them would have been righteous acts by God. But he's in partnership. And so when Moses pleads for this, he decides to change his mind, not because it would have been wrong if he would have followed through on the other plan. He changed his mind for one reason. When Moses made this request, who did it benefit? Not himself. Moses' primary concern wasn't that he was going to get credit, that his family was going to be taken care of. What was on his mind first was, I want the glory and honor of God to be at front of, front of mind for everybody. Now, God could have chosen a different path. He was justified in doing so. But he listened to Moses and wanted to honor that request and chose to do so because Moses put God first. What, what would happen in your life if the decisions that you came to about the things that you look at, the places that you go, the way you talk to people, the actions that you take at work, what if 
The question you asked was, how would this make God look if I did this? Would this bring honor to God's name if I choose to do this? Or would this bring honor to me first? Somewhere along the path, Moses had developed a God-first kind of attitude. And because of it, it grew humility in him. Because somewhere, like God-first, and somewhere down here was his desire for his name, his family, his blessing. It wasn't even on the same category. And because of that, he was able to respond with a sense of humility because that had grown in his life. And you saw him saying, God first, God first, God first. I know I was just offered the opportunity to be a great nation, to have my descendants elevated, but I'm more concerned with you, God. What would happen? What would change in your life if you approach your decisions with that kind of attitude? God first. I'm down here somewhere. I don't even know where it's at. The third story is in Numbers chapter 12. This is the section of Scripture where God notes that he's the most humble person on the face of the earth at this time. And this is a difficult situation. There's going to be a conflict. And it's between people that he's close with. Verse 1 of chapter 12 says, Miriam and Aaron began to talk against Moses because of his Cushite wife, for he had married a Cushite. Which is to say, yeah, they're complaining about something that's true. He actually did it. I married a Cushite. How did he know that he would ever be back near his people? So he started a family. And what exactly is the problem here? Because if they admit, yeah, I had married a Cushite wife, what was she going to do to change her heritage? Nothing. It's not the issue. The issue is something else is going on. That becomes the excuse to bring up the issue. And the issue is they think they could do a better job, which is, by the way, part of something that you will experience in life, period. It doesn't seem to matter what you do, whether you play on a sports team, whether you coach that team, whether you take a job, um, the job you do as a parent, the relationship that you have with a spouse. At some point, somebody will talk to you like they could do it better. And the problem is they might be able to. They might be able to do it better. Look, look at what happens in verse 2. Has the Lord spoken only through Moses, they asked? Hasn't he also spoken through us? Now the real problem is on the table. We want to be the ones who you hear the voice of God from. And Aaron had been doing it. Moses had asked for help, and Aaron had kind of been assigned to the role because Moses didn't think he could do a very good job communicating. And so Aaron must have done a much better job. He was doing a better job. But there was one big problem. God assigned the role to Moses. I want you to do this. It doesn't matter if somebody can do it better. For whatever reason, and you don't have to understand it, I asked you to do the role. You could feel that way 
As a parent, you could feel that way at your job. You could feel that way with a friendship that you have. You could feel that way with a spouse. You could look around and go, somebody else could do this better, yes, but God gave you that role. Now, here's a big problem. If you're in that job, if you've taken on that responsibility and God wasn't the one who encouraged you to do that, you've got a problem on your hands. But most of the time, the relationships we're in, God is like, he's for that. He's supporting that. He blessed that. He wants you to lean in and do something to make that relationship soar. And you might feel inadequate, but it doesn't matter. It's yours. Which is why this happens next. At the end of verse 2, it says this, and the Lord heard this. See, if God's the one who does the assigning, then he's the one who does the supporting. He's the one who does the encouraging. He's the one who holds you accountable. And if you're not careful, you'll get caught up in all kinds of criticism that comes your way, and you'll second guess whether you should even be doing what you're doing. By the way, I've had... Uh, this is kind of like a church dispute. This is, this is kind of tame from what I've seen in churches. This is a little bit of a power struggle. I've seen that. Most of the time, um, people just get upset because they want stuff their way. I just want it. They believe their way is the best way. And now we live in a culture where it's not just that you believe that you should have an opinion. You believe that you should share it and somebody should do something about that opinion. That's the world we live in. And so I have been in situations where I've made a choice and I've been criticized from both sides of it. I can't believe you did that. I can't believe you didn't do enough of that. It's not like, what are you going to do? You could run yourself in a circle. See, this is a little different than the feedback that he took from his father-in-law because this is criticism that comes with an agenda they wanted to replace him. And fact is, one of them could probably do it better than Moses. And yet, God decides to come to his defense. By the way, that's of great comfort to me. I've decided because I, we're, all, we're all in different roles where you receive criticism. And I've decided that when I hear that kind of stuff, I, I, I can't act defensively. I'm going to have to let God defend me or not if he, if he doesn't want to. It's not mine. If God asks me to do the role, that's all. That's all I have to be worried about. I'll let him defend. And in this case, that's exactly what happens. He calls a meeting. He says, I want Aaron, Miriam, and Moses in the tent. The cloud comes down. That signifies the presence of God. And they have a little powwow. And this is what happens in verse 10. When the cloud lifted from above the tent, Miriam's skin was leprous. It became white as snow. Uh, the arm that you see on that little picture there, I faded it because it's so gross, is an arm covered in leprosy. Skin turns white, it starts eating away. There's, um, back then, you're going to die. This was a death sentence. And if there's any ego in you at all, 
what you feel like is like, well, I've been feeling sorry for myself, but now God just defended me. Yes, you got what you had coming. I'm going to celebrate. I'm going to dance. I know. I know this is hard on you, but you shouldn't have tried to undercut me. You shouldn't have criticized me. Again, it's all me. It's all I. And that makes sense to me as a way to respond. But Miriam and Aaron are relatives of Moses. And look at his response in verse 13. Please, God, heal her. This is said with emphasis. Like he's pleading with God in a begging sort of way. I want you to repair this situation. I'm not at all worried about what she has to say. Why? Because I'm convinced that you asked me to do this, that's enough. That's enough. See, I, I think at this point he's displaying another attitude of humility. I, I wrote this down in my notes. I don't know who I got it from. This is not an original thought of mine. I can't give credit to who it's due, but I love this. Humility is not thinking of yourself lower than you are. It's not some false humility where I'm going to try to pretend. Moses is the leader of the nation. He's up there. What humility is, is understanding that you're not as high as you think. That what's happening in the life of Miriam and Aaron, that you, you could be there too. You could do that too. You could have the same attitude. You could have done the same thing. He's no better than they are. And because he realizes this, he can approach God and say, listen, I trust you. We've been developing this trust with each other. It doesn't matter that they've come up and criticized against me. I have a trust for you. And because I know I could be just like them, I want you to forgive them. I want you to heal her. I want us to go back to trying to find a way to have a partnership with them. And once again, God listens. Why? Because Moses has been developing a sense of trust with God for a long time now. And when you make a place in your heart for God that I will trust you, it starts to move you off the plate. Because he has a trust for who God is, he realizes I'm not any better than those people. And you have a sense that you know what? I'm in this place because of God's blessing, not because of how good I am, not because I'm uniquely different, and that's what allowed me to be blessed by God in this way. It's all God's blessing. It's all God's hand. And because of that level of trust, humility grows. In fact, I would tell you that humility grows when you find a way to put God at the center of who you are on a regular basis. That's what all of these things were doing. When he decided to cultivate trust, he was putting God at the center of who he was. When he decided that he would actually practice a God-first attitude, 
He was putting God at the center of who he was, and it was squeezing out everything else. When he decided that he was going to be open to feedback, that God could bring him that in any way, shape, or form, that he would be open to having that engagement, he was opening himself up to being led and directed by God. And when that happened, it changed his heart. And it allowed him to respond in ways that I would have a hard time responding in. But when God becomes the center of who you are, it pushes you out and allows you to start having responses that honor him in ways that are different than what you've ever done before. See, all of us have ego trolling around in our hearts somewhere. And our goal is to find a way to give God that space that ego wants, to cultivate this trust to put him first, to open ourselves up to feedback. And by doing so, it grows humility and causes us to worship like we've never worshiped before. That's my prayer for you. Would you pray with me as we close? God, this... uh, thing of ego trolls around in all of our hearts. It's just looking for small openings, little things where we feel disrespected, feel like we're not getting what we deserve, feel sorry for ourselves. God, there's so many little cracks and crevices, but I ask that as we consider how good of a God you are, that we'll we'll realize you're worthy of all of that space. You're worthy of our hearts. And that if we would focus on caring more about what you think, about how you're seen, about how you're communicating to us, that we could be changed. God, I ask that you would open our hearts to your goodness and realize that if we just followed you, we wouldn't be led around by our own egos. We could have a partnership with you. I really believe that's what you want. God, we're going to give them a, a song to just sit and listen to and process. And I just ask that the Spirit would move, that as they consider how good this God is that we serve, that they would realize there is space in their hearts for him. And I ask you would move people to make a decision to start exercising the qualities and the gifting that puts you there. We ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen.